Hey, everyone, and welcome back. I'm Seth Abramovich, senior writer at The Hollywood Reporter. I'm Chip Pope, international party boy. So we're in a good mood around here because uh, we were nominated for a National Arts and Entertainment Journalism Award for our first episode with William Friedkin from season one. Whoa, that rocks. And by the time this airs, we'll know if we won or lost. The tension is killing me all of a sudden. (laughs) Either way, it's a thrill to be nominated. That's what they say when you don't win. (laughs) So maybe we should record two versions. (laughs) (laughs) That'll be our insurance policy version. (laughs) But... um, Welcome back, and we're pretty excited to be here in the second episode of the second season. This one, we feel, first of all, we've landed, you know, one of the most respected, admired, enigmatic god legends in Hollywood history. So we're doing something right if we got him to say yes. Yeah, yeah, definitely. David Mamet has agreed to sit with us for a full episode. And what did you think, Chip? I was just trying not to sound stupid. It's hard not to around him. Everything that came out of our mouths, you're like, oh, no, does he think I'm dumb? But then he just opens up, and this guy is just a wealth of really, really smart insights. I mean, he has really strong opinions, and they are not the ones that you'd call conventional wisdom. And those are the people that always fascinate me the most. So let's get to the theme song so we can get to some David Mamet. What do you say? Yes, let's do it. Okay. And that's this episode of It Happened in Hollywood. So David Mamet, we should say he said yes, and he didn't give us much notice. He basically said the day of I'm coming in and we scrambled to make it happen. You drop everything. Like when you got a hot date, it's like, (laughs) oh, what? That's in the 30 minutes in the valley. I'll be there. (laughs) Chapstick, Banaka Bay. We wanted to make a good impression. Yes. Yes, Mr. Mamet. Thank you, Mr. Mamet. And uh, the film of his that we chose is one called Oleana. Now, this is based on a play of his that he had on Off-Broadway that I had seen the original one of that his wife, Rebecca Pigeon, starred in with, I believe it was William H. Macy. Yes. Billy Macy, as he calls him. Who's one of his best friends, along with uh, William Macy's wife, who just did some hard time. Breaking rocks. So I was remember being blown away by this play in the early 90s. I just, it was basically at the dawn of what you consider the sort of political correctness takeover of college campuses. And it's a two-hander. It's a a college student and a professor. And it takes place entirely in his office. And uh, it takes you on quite a journey. Your loyalties shift around throughout. Sometimes you're with the professor. Sometimes you're with the student. You're not really sure whose side you're on throughout this piece. So this is the first time I'm meeting David Mamet, although I've, I've talked to him before on the phone. He sends me his cartoons sometimes for possible publication. First thing, what, did, what was your first impression of him? That he was just a real nice guy. You expect to be intimidated by some imposing figure because you built him up in your head. Oh, it's the great David Mamet, Pulitzer Prize winner. I was also impressed that he was in pretty good shape. He was like, 
uh, for his age, which uh, I don't, I'm forgetting right now. I feel like he's maybe 70, 71. Yeah, he's like, he looks pretty athletic and uh, he, he looked well put together. And trim, if trim. you were to describe in a magazine article. So here you go. In real time, here's us meeting our hero, David Mamet, face to face. We're here with David Mamet. To me, you're a giant. Like your name is just, you know, Thank huge, you. but you're in person, just, you seem like a very nice guy. That's what my wife said. I said, yeah, we just celebrated our 20th, 28th wedding anniversary. I said, you know, you're such a magnificent woman. Why in the world did you, you marry me? I could have had anybody you wanted. She said, I don't know. You seem like a nice enough guy. <laughs> so this is two times in one week. All right. Well, there, there must be something to that then. I yeah. guess. And of course, you've written all these influential books about, about the dramaturgy and how to write a, a proper script. And I'd love to get into that as we talk about this specific Mm -hmm. uh, case study of Oleana. Would you consider yourself now more playwright or film, or w how do you label yourself first, if at all? Well, you know, uh, there's a, g a great tendency to to be to be self dismissive, you know, which is a for form of hypocrisy. But I just I always called myself a gag writer because there's a gr such a great similarity between writing a gag. And writing a play or a movie, they both they all operate exactly the same way. You know, some so obviously the forms are a little bit different, but what you want to do is raise the audience's expectation, pay them off in a way they didn't expect. That's how you write a one-liner, and that's also how you write a tragedy. And of course, you do a lot of cartooning, which is sort of a visual gag. Yes, that's paper. right. So did you ever write gags for anyone? Were you ever a comedy writer? I did. I wrote the gags for Marilyn Sokol a long time ago when she was doing stand-up. And uh, she still owes me and my friend Johnny Katz $134. And I wrote <laughs> uh, gags for my friend uh, Jonathan Katz, the, who's, of course, among other things, Dr. Katz, professional therapist, been my best friend for over 50 years. And then I, I, wrote, I wrote a couple of gags for Steve Martin, another friend of mine, but um, he said... He, I asked, I, he was one, he was, <laughs> he was doing the Oscars one year and he'd just broken up with uh, Anne Heche, who decided that she was gay. So, and so I said, wait a second. And he just, and Tom Hanks had just done Castaway, right? So I said, here's a great gag to open up. I say, oh, I see where Anne Heche is dating the volleyball from Castaway. <laughs> but he said, no, I, I, I can't do it. So, <laughs> But I wrote him a couple other gags, a couple of which he did. It's such fun. It so beats working. <laughs> so right off the bat, we learned something very unexpected about David Mamet, which was that he was Steve Martin's Bruce Valanche. I mean, David Mamet doing Oscar material. I never, I didn't know that one. That's that seems like what? <laughs> hilarious, but but I, I do like him uh, equating uh, dramatic writing with a joke because it is. There's, you know, your expectations and then a reversal of the expectations, and there you, you go. You have the release, and so in the comedy, it's a laugh, and in drama, it's a cry. There we go. Well, it's put, that easy. Chip. Now, well now, put. now everybody can go and write a Pulitzer Prize winning play. Thanks, David, David Mamet. This has been a great episode. Of <laughs> no, it no, no, no. Oh, it's we're, not... we're just getting going. Oh, okay, cool. All right, so before we get into where Oleana started, here's a quick synopsis. Chip, take it away. Okay, you got a professor and a student. She's not making the grade in the class. She wants help. He tells her, I'll give you an A if you come in and work with me, which is very open-ended, but she takes that as a come on. She files a complaint with the school. He loses his job, and uh, spoiler alert. So, 
but we won't say exactly what happens at the end. Well, yeah, things start to get uh, a little violent and um, primal. And the stakes keep going higher and higher till, till the end of the movie. And it, it is really worth seeking out this film and, and watching it. There's surprises and it's amazing how much he does with two people. But every great script starts with great inspiration. And here's Mamet telling us where it started. I was living in Boston with my wife and we were doing a lot of movies out of Boston. And we were doing a lot of plays out of Boston, too, because uh, the great Bob Brewstein was then running the Yale Rep. And he said, Dave, anything you want to do, I got two theaters, just to tell me what dates you want them, and I'll put them on. So those plays came to Broadway, off-Broadway, including Boston Marriage, which was playing played off-Broadway with my wife, Rebecca, and Felicity Huffman, and then Oleana, which played with Billy Macy and my wife, and then um, The Cryptogram, which was Ed Begley and Felicity Huffman, and a couple more. We just were working like mad out of, out of Boston. And a guy comes over one day, and he says, uh, a friend of a friend, and he says, I need a drink. I say, well, how come? He says, well, you know, I just blah, blah, blah. There's this woman, a student of mine, and she was talking to some counselor or other, and the counselor complained about my behavior to the uh, whatever, you know, the, whatever the hell the docents were, the, um, the proctors or whatever the hell you call them those days. And, she's, and so the woman came to the administration with her parents and said, we don't have any complaint against this guy. We'd like you to withdraw their complaint. And, they, and the, the university said, well, no, we can't do it. And so the guy's life was ruined. And so I said, wow, do, is this generally known? And he said, no, but it will be. So I, I sat down and I wrote, wrote the play. And when you heard his story, it sounds like you were sympathetic to this guy. He was your friend. Well, I, 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 well, sure. I mean, if someone comes to your house to tell you a sad story, we're always sympathetic to them. Mm -hmm. Just like when we go to somebody else's house, we tell them our sad story. They're sympathetic to us. You don't take into account the fact that there may be another side of the story because that's not the appropriate venue for doing that. Mm -hmm. Or you sell golly gumdrops, that's too bad. But here you had a, a potential hot potato uh, with lots of tension in the story in that you know, you could play the two against each other and you could also play with the sympathies of the audience and sort of, you know, sort of do that. He said, she said, tennis match. Like, is that how you approach this? Like, oh, this is, this is an opportunity for high drama that I can really manipulate the audience and change the way they're... No, I would never manipulate the audience. I never do that. I mean, that's, that's, that's as wrong as a dentist putting you under uh, anesthesia and then lecturing to you about investment opportunities. No, the audience comes to, they, they withhold their capacity to judge in return for the promise of seeing a drama, which is to say something which is going to lead them in one direction and eventuate in a way which is both surprising and inevitable. It's the easiest thing in the world to manipulate an audience, but it's immoral. So what were your thoughts about the woman half of this, of this play? What, what, going into it, what were your self-instructions? I don't have self-instructions. You know, it, it's, it's the the constant, the fallacy, and I'm trying to understand anybody's art is post hoc ergo proctor hoc. If it, it's, it happens at the back, it must have been the intention at the beginning. So what you want to do, if you can actually write, and you know, if you have the uh, the the patience to uh, sit up and put up with the trauma of figuring it out is you write a bunch of interchanges. You say two people have a different point of view. How's it going to work out? I don't know. So what you want to do is at the end, you want to reconfigure the moments 
in terms of the overall structure and then reconfigure the structure in terms of the the, the clarity of, of any individual interchange so that at any point you could look at one interchange and say, well, he's right and well, she's right, but at the end they end up destroying themselves. So that's why the play is a tragedy. You know, if one of them is a villain and the other one's an angel, you don't have a tragedy, you have a, you have a melodrama. So Carol's not a villain in your in your estimation? I don't think either one of them are villains because it's, it's a classical tragedy written with two people on stage and a telephone call, right? And I'm very happy with it because structurally it's very, very hard to do. I don't know if anyone's done it in a couple thousand years, but I know that Aeschylus and them guys would have done it if they had a telephone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's interesting because they're both... They're uh, each other's heroes, but also each other's adversaries at the same well, time. Well, yeah, that, I think that's true. And the other thing that was, amazed me is that no, so I was shocked at the, absolutely shocked at the reception to this play, shocked, because I thought that each person's um, actions were wrong and right, human and defensible. Here's a young woman that very few people talk about this. She's been driven crazy by a fellow who says, okay, we aren't going to have any rules. I'm going to give you an A. Forget school. School's a bunch of nonsense. bibbidi bobbidi boo So then she says, well, wait a second. What the hell am I doing here? Why don't you have no... She says, you have no idea what I went through to get here. And now you're telling me it's a bunch of nonsense. I don't get it. So to a certain extent, to, in fact, to a very large extent, she's been abandoned. So if you take young people and abandon them and say, guess what, do whatever you want, they're going to go crazy. I mean, trust me, I got, I got so many children, I live in a shoe. You know, that's, that's what happens. You know, they need structure. Because if they don't have structure, what are they going to rebel against? Mm-hmm. So she's abandoned by the educational institution, and she gets people who will say, Miss, let me take your cow to the fair for you, right? right? Her, her cow being her political person. So she gets uh, radicalized, as everybody does, as I did when I got young. Because rather than trying to look at, I'm actually writing another book, which I'm not going to tell you about, but it's about education. Uh, and it's a fictional diary of a fellow who ran a boarding school, uh, for, like, for example, Exeter or something like that in the East, where he's trying to work out his feelings about education. Because I said to my wife years ago, I'm thinking of writing a book about education. She said, please don't. <laughs> so I did anyway. So I owe her an apology. <laughs> when you say to kids, there's nothing for you to matriculate into. Everything in this country prior to now is a crime, and everything after today is Armageddon. The kids will go crazy. Of course they will. You, know, you, don't, you don't even have to be a kid to go crazy. So if you don't give a kid something to aspire to and say, you can do it, you can make that jump into adulthood, fatherhood, motherhood, parenthood, marriage, self-sufficiency, property, military service, community, blah, 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 religion, they're lost because they're frightened, you know? Mm-hmm. So you have to do two things. You have to challenge them. You have to reward them for fulfilling the challenges, and you have to give them some, and you have to set an example, or else they go nuts. Okay. Right? Where do you start with that? <laughs> oh my God. It's like, I feel like I just had sex. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Um, you have very dry, intelligent sex. <laughs> no, but he's getting at something very fundamental, and I think it could tell us something about what's going on in the world now and why everyone is becoming so radicalized on either end of the political spectrum. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to figure out right. what it is he's saying. But it's something about what these college students, what these forming minds 
are told and ex- what's expected of them. Mm-hmm. And like all this frustration you're seeing amongst millennials and Gen Z and all this okay boomer stuff, you know, I think is the um the extrapolation of the essence of this play, Oleana. Mm-hmm. And I'm right. probably not articulate enough to figure out how to explain that. But that's the same angst is what I got watching this movie is what I'm sensing out there, being right. whether on social media or just, you know, in the street, just the frustration at, at being promised something and then being told by the older generation, in this case, William H. Macy, the professor, that it's kind of, uh, it's a three-card Monty or it's a house of cards. It's like not real. Right. And you've kind of been taken and now it's your problem. Yeah, you're just looking for guidance. You're looking for a set of codes to live your life by. And if it's just anarchy, you feel like, well, what am I paying for this for? You know, if there's no, there's no point to it. And, and what is life for? And what, where, right. like, what, and, and she becomes radicalized in the movie. You see it happen. She starts as sort of a meek girl. And then by the middle, even, she's joined a woman's feminist group mm-hmm. who are her pa- empowerment. And her one goal is to take him down at any right. cost necessary. And I feel like that's that's what's going on now. People are finding their tribes and they're trying to take people down. And that becomes uh, your agency. Mm. So let's get back to David Mamet because he has a lot more to say. Okay, so help me get into the mind of the professor here. Because there's a lot of halted uh, debate between the two of them. And he keeps stammering trying to get his point out. And she she doesn't understand the point. But he, he refers to college repeatedly as hazing. Yeah. And uh, that it's something he, he, he refers to sort of socioeconomic data that suggests, I assumed he was going to say that, it, that only the rich can afford it. No, it's not because only the rich can afford it. It's, it's, it basically is systematic hazing. I mean, I, you know, I went to pretend college, a hippie school, and I worked in and around the most elite universities in the country. And from the standpoint of uh, the arts, and the standpoint of the liberal arts, whatever in the world that may mean, it's a bunch of nonsense. You're not going to learn more than you would learn by going to the library. You're going to learn a lot less. And one of the things you're going to learn is disrespect for authority and disrespect for your elders, who, because anybody in a corrupt institution is going to become corrupted to a certain extent. Right, all, all institutions are to a certain extent corrupt because all human nature is to a certain extent corrupt. But when the young look at the, the old and they say, well, wait a second, why are they mouthing this nonsense? There's nobody home. Why are they putting up with my bad behavior? Right. So that's why the kids need someone to say, no, you can't do that rather than, oh, you're just expressing yourself. Shelby, the great Shelby Steele in White Guilt writes a lot about, Shelby's a black man, for those of you who don't know, writes a lot about being involved in the black power movement at Berkeley when he was a kid and going to the head of the school. It might have been Berkeley, might have been San Francisco State, I remember. And Shelby's smoking a cigarette. He drops it on the floor while they're talking to the head of the school, and he puts the cigarette out on the carpet. And he says for the rest of his life he felt dreadful that he'd done that, and he also felt nothing but contempt for the president who didn't have the 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 coyotes to say you can't act that way because the question of the young is how how do i act i mean everybody at this table most of the people listening i think we all remember looking across that divide between late adolescence young personhood and maturity and saying i have no way in the world 
to figure out how to get across that street. Right. And that's how she is at the beginning of, yeah. the, of the piece. Yeah, exactly so. So she works, works, works according to the system. And the guy says, the system's nonsense. Forget about the system. There's just you and me. So we put the play on the first night at uh, the Hasty Pudding Club under the auspices of Bob Brewstein at the Harvard, at Harvard. And uh, there's a bunch of students there who had come up from Dartmouth. And one of the students comes up to me after and say, what would you think? And the student says, well, do you think that's politically responsible? And it's the first time I'd ever heard that phrase used. I mean, you know, as an American citizen born right after World War II, where did the idea of political responsibility come in? And I thought, well, that's an odd, that's an odd reaction. So that was just the beginning. That, that was hinting towards the phrase political correctness? I guess, yes. That was the, 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 the early days of you can't say that or I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to kill you, ruin you, blacklist you. Mm-hmm. Uh, cancel you, they'd say now. Yeah. So as we mentioned before, William H. Macy is one of his closest friends. and Billy? Uh, Billy Macy? In rewatching this, of one of the many resonances was, of course, the irony that Felicity Huffman, Billy Macy's wife, just did this time for, you know, that well-publicized scam of you know, faking. I, I forget exactly what, they, what was their case, but they, they lied to get their Buying their way into USC. They they definitely paid their way through. And, you know, the irony of having Bill Macy playing this professor in 1994 saying, college is a scam. (laughs) You know, like, it kind of hits you like a Mack truck. And and I had to ask David Mamet about it, even though I knew it was a tender topic because he's so close to them. Well, let me ask this because I couldn't help but notice. So we have William H. Macy playing the professor, sort of going on at length about the scam that is higher education, university, college. And then you have him, and he's, of course, a very good friend of yours and his wife, Felicity Huffman, going through what they just went through. And do you see any parallels there between what they went through to get their kids an education and what your professor is saying in this film? Well, it's always been, it's always, uh, admission to uh, higher education has always, always, always been corrupt, whatever you say. There was a wonderful guy called Christopher Hollis wrote books in the, uh, after, between, between wars and up until the 60s. He was a high Tory Englishman, and he wrote a history of Oxford and a history of Eton. And, the, and he says the same thing, going back to when he went to Eton and Oxford in the, you know, 1919, blah, blah, blah. And he says, whatever they say, it's for the rich. Right, what they're selling is status. He says you ain't going to learn nothing at Eton, you ain't going to learn nothing at Oxford that you couldn't learn in a library, but you're selling status. And you know, there's also you know, I think I understand there's a presidential candidate who got into an elite university by claiming that she had some status as a Native American. So my kids are are at the at the very very end of their uh, higher education, and a couple of them, to their credit, never went. But I lived through, you know, 30 years of, oh, my God, how are we going to get our kid into nursery school? How are we going to get our kid into kindergarten? How are we going to get into blah, blah, blah? And the constant barrage of—I'm talking about both public education and private education—the constant barrage of begging and wheedling and insinuation on the part of these elite schools saying, well, if you, you know, you do what you want, but if you want our support, blah, 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 also let me suggest this 
tutor. Let me suggest this activity. Let me suggest it. And then, oh, Dave, would you mind writing a letter for somebody you never met? Right. Or blah, blah, blah. Oh, I know your kid just came to the soccer game once, but would you mind saying et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? I don't think there's anyone. Or the other side of the coin is, oh, they're an American Indian or one of their grand great grandparents was a uh, was an African-American or blah, 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 blah. Parents will take advantage of anything they can do to help their kid. And so the question is, what's sharp practice and what's fraud? And it's a wavy line. So parents come to me, for example, they say, well, should my kid go to film school? And I say, oh, well, I'll tell you my opinion. You're not going to like it. I'll tell you. But I'll tell you after I tell you, you're going to send your kid to film school anyway because or not, you wouldn't ask. You're not even going to learn nothing in film school. But what they're going to do is waste the four most important years of their life because the years between like 18, 22, 17, and 25, that's, that's when the fontanelle in the skull closes. Right, and it ain't gonna open again. That's the time you gotta suck it up, and say, okay, I don't know how to be an adult, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna figure it out. And you ain't gonna do that at, you know, at movie camp. <laughs> I was twisting. I think it was UCLA. It might not have been UCLA. I was talking to one kid. Went to. He said, "How can you say that?" I said, "Well, I can say that because you know I spent 40 years making movies, and uh, if you don't learn it on a set, you're not gonna learn it. It doesn't exist." And he said, well, but I went to and he names the school. I said, well, oh, what, did they teach you a lot of technique? He said, no, they didn't teach me any technique. I said, well, what did you study? He said, they taught me how to think about movies. <laughs> what? <laughs> I mean, is that worth a quarter of a million dollars in the most four important years of your life? You know, the, the, the only important thing, as Eisenstein said, is if you're going out to get more popcorn, the film's no good. <laughs> Let's just unpack what just happened there. He was definitely talking about William Macy and Felicity Huffman at the beginning. Right. And Without saying, naming them. No, he didn't name them. But he was uh-huh. saying that the process of getting into colleges has always been sort of right. wavy gravy. People are going to take advantage of anything they can do to right. help their kid. So it was sort of like an ethical you know, hall pass that he was giving them. And then he kind of darted into whether or not you need to go to film school, which was a deflection, I would say, yes. but very funny. Right. You're not going to do a getcha with him, I don't think. <laughs> anyway, bottom line, David Mammon is someone with some very strong opinions about education. So I, it made me kind of curious. What was his education? My education was I went to the Chicago Public Schools, and then I went for two years to a wonderful um, private school in Chicago called the Francis Parker School which was then, my teachers were Holocaust survivors. They were, it was basically, still is basically a Jewish school, school for the Jews on the north side. And these were people who escaped from the Nazis and had multiple doctorates from the great universities of Europe and were discovered cleaning offices because they couldn't get, they couldn't get past the Chicago Board of Education. So those were my teachers They changed my life. And then, because in spite of that, I never never opened a school book. I went to this hippy-dippy school that all that had to recommend it is we don't care about your grades, we don't care about your SATs. So, you know, I played poker for four years. <laughs> in the middle of it, I took a year off. I went to the Neighborhood Playhouse School in New York and studied with, uh, the, who was then run by one of my teachers was Sanford Meisner. And that was a great education because I spent a lot of time, in addition to being bad as a student, being dreadful as an actor. But 
the thing that I learned there was you're, when you're watching whoever six hours a day, people do exercises because you're not going to learn anything when you're doing the exercises yourself because nobody can do those stupid exercises. No one, right? Sense memory and effective memory and the repeating, it's garbage. No one can do it. So what you're doing is you're rehearsing failure. But when you're watching the people do the exercises, you, I, I began to understand what's actually going on in a theatrical environment, and that was a great help in, in writing plays. Meisner created the method, or no? That was there were two guys. They were they were both the guys who uh, at the uh, they were part of the group theater. Lee Strasberg and Sandy Meisner, and because they really couldn't, neither of them could act, neither of them could direct. They became teachers, as many of us have. And Strasberg gobbled together this idea called the the method, and. Meisner gobbled together this idea called the Meisner Technique. It wasn't called the Meisner Technique then, it is now. And it really came out of their experiences uh, trying to understand the Stanislavski system, mm-hmm. which yeah. is a bunch of bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> Was that like sense memory? Or? Yeah, absolutely. Instead of just practically doing something and putting yourself yeah. in the scene. At the exactly. Moment. It's like so when you, my dog died and you're trying to like... Uh, you don't have to because if, if you take two actors and put them in a scene and say, okay, here's the thing, your dog died and this person run him over, go, make it up. It's going to be much, much better than all the sense memory in the world. The problem is when they have to use lines. So they have to train themselves. What the actor has to do is to train him or herself to let the lines come out. Mm-hmm. Right to not work up the lines in in the in the mirror, so that the, any line uh, is surprising to the other person and so to the audience. So that's interesting and revealing that he feels like he wasted the four years of his life in college at a hippy dippy college. Do you think maybe that's why he's got an axe to grind in some level? Maybe, maybe. Yeah, he, he just played poker for four years, but he seemed uh, a lot more energized by this world of theater and creativity, even though he kind of poo-poos all the heavy Marlon Brando-esque, you know, acting methods. Right, right. Uh, He's a pragmatist. Right. He's a fan of doing. Yeah. You can't learn to plow by reading books, as they say. But moving along, you know, since we got now into the text, which was what he discovered was his talent, you know, the first thing you think when you think David Mamet is his style of, of dialogue. Right. Which, how would you explain it? Well, it's very staccato and it's a lot of cursing. For some reason, I thought he was going to be cursing at us because of all the plays that have cursing in them. Yeah. Because he just has written some of the most beautiful cursing in history. But instead, we got like golly, golly gumdrops and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and, you know, I just thought he was like, this fucking guy, Miser, comes in smelling of shit, you know. But he, <laughs> it wasn't like that at all. But beyond the cursing, there's a poetry and a and a rhythm. It's almost like a music, and it's it's right. unnatural to normal human speech patterns. But you know it as the David Mamet way of of talking, and it's very halted and staccato. And and there is a good explanation. Maybe let's throw in a clip from Oleana now to show what we're talking about. I have an appointment I have to make, an appointment which is rather pressing. Though I sympathize with your concerns, and though I wish I had the time, this was not a previously scheduled meeting. And I have an appointment with a realtor and with my wife. You think that I'm stupid. No, I certainly do not. You said it. When? You did. No, I never did, or never would say that to a student. You said, what can that mean? And what did that mean that to you? That meant I'm stupid and I'll never learn. That's what that meant, and you're right. I, but then, but then, what am I doing? If you here? thought well, that nobody I would, wants if me, you and nobody tells me anything, and I sit there in the corner, in the back, and everybody's talking about this all the time, and concepts and precepts, and 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 and. and. 
What in the world are you talking about? See what I mean? <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> yes, I do too. I understand that, Seth. Do you understand that? I understand it very well. It is understood very well. I think you're better at it than I am. But anyway, here's David. Yes, Madden. I am. <laughs> <laughs> um, explaining, you know, where that style came from, and it, he has a very specific and uh, I thought surprising answer. I'm going to share my secret with all of you listeners, and you can all do the same thing. Here's here's what you do. You have to have your ancestors start about 6,000 years ago being persecuted because of their race and their religion. And after 6,000 years of that, you will probably have the genetic and cultural disposition to not trust anything and to treat everything with a sense of irony and to be very, very wary, not so much of bad news, but of good news. <laughs> I think these people are called Jews. <laughs> I was saying, that sounds like my family. Yeah. Sound, sound familiar? Yeah. <laughs> so you're saying that the, the speech patterns are similar to the ones you grew up with? or Of course. The speech patterns are similar to... Listen, when I was a kid, all my grandparents and the grandparents of everybody I knew spoke with a thick accent and didn't speak very good English. And so the uh, my parents' generation was the first American generation. All they wanted to do was a Assimilate. I can't blame them. You know, they came back from the Depression. They came back from the war. Anybody who stayed in Europe got thrown into an oven. So they wanted to be Americans, but still they retained the speech patterns of Yiddishkeit, which means Jewishness, the Jewishness of Eastern Europe, which is, uh, it's very getamped, as we would say. It's very tasty. So from that, I'm trying to, to make the bridge from Yiddishkeit and that sort of uh, of the earth, kind of, you know, bit whiny, Jewish, this is the way it is, to um, to these sort of kind of like rapid fire, almost like machine gun exchanges. Uh, like, I don't totally see the connection. Well, I don't either, but there you are. But uh, <laughs> part of the problem was because I, you know, didn't go to an elite school. I remember I was at this little school in the midst of nowhere, which was basically, it was called Goddard College. It was basically no school there. And I went down to visit some friends of mine from uh, Francis Parker School, who were at Harvard. And I was stunned and overcome and awed by the idea, oh my God, someone is actually taking care of these people and there's a world prepared for them and they are being inducted into it, which is what Harvard does, of course. And nobody was doing that for me. So, but you know, it's another reason why I took refuge in the magnificent world of, of show business, as, you know, as Jews have for a long time. You guys didn't seem to see the connection that he was getting at. I, I might be too close to it, <laughs> <laughs> having grown up right. surrounded by that music. But I think I knew what he was saying. When you learn English, when you learn a mm -hmm. second language, you're not very flowery about it. Mm -hmm. It's just, hi, I like your laptop. May I see your laptop? Yes, mm -hmm. you may see your laptop. There's not a lot of time to like gussy it up and everything. Mm -hmm. Kind of English as a second language kind of thing. Exactly. So in that sense, I think that's what he means like, by the, uh, the rhythm of it. And also, you know, he's all about stripping down to fundamentals. You know, he doesn't like frilly ornamentation in any sense, in plotting, right. in characterization, and certainly not in language. So right. now that we're into the words which is the part you want to talk about with David Mamet. Yes. You know, the, traditionally in, in the theater, you know, in film, the screenwriter is jokingly known as the least powerful person on the totem pole. 
Isn't there a joke about... She was so dumb. Yeah. How dumb was she? <laughs> she tried to break into show business by sleeping with the screenwriter. All right. Chip, thank you for saving me there, because I could not remember that joke, <laughs> but that's the joke. Now, in, in theater, playwright is king, and I think TV as well. But in theater, you know, it's the god, the playwright. Yeah. So I was excited to hear him talk about how, how word is, is uh, you know, anything he writes is as if God, you know, chiseled it on some tablets and handed it down. But there was a pattern happening here, which was basically everything I said was wrong and everything you said was right on the money. <laughs> I think it's just because uh, I don't look like I have any authority whatsoever. So <laughs> maybe, it's, maybe. It's I have yeah, yeah, kid. Yeah, the kid. Look at the kid, the goofball over there. Sure, and I'm the sure prof kid. professorial jackass. Exactly. But here's a perfect example of that. Okay, and then the second thing I have about the text is, you know, in the method and all different acting techniques, you know, the text is, your, the first thing you're taught is throw out the text. That's like the last thing you have to worry about. And it's all about what's going on between us, between our eyes, our sense memory, our this and that. And then the words become very secondary. And I'm assuming... For you, text is God when it comes to the theater. No, all they got to do is say the stupid fucking words. <laughs> you, don't, you don't have to think about them. I just directed a play in London, and uh, there's this young woman who was really, Danny, who was my assistant, really good, really assist, good assistant, and she did a marvelous job, and she said, well, you know, what, what would you say to me? And I'd say, just do what we did, right? Never discuss the play. Never do a full reading of the play. Keep rehearsal short, tell the actors to stand up, cheat out, speak up, and the play will take care of itself. Now, how do we know this? Any of us who've ever been in the theater know if you do summer stock, instead of spending three weeks, you know, talking about your various diet cures and your dogs and then screaming at each other, you learn the lines and you put it on on Friday night. It's really a myth that a play has to be rehearsed for a month, and it's really a myth that it needs a director. It doesn't. It needs some good actors, and you throw the actors up and tell them learn, show up with lowing the lines, and it will take care of itself. And then in film, how do you feel about film and the director? Well, th th that's what you're doing in film is you're directing a movie. Like People ask me how I rehearsed a film. I say, I've never rehearsed a film in my life. Some people did. Sidney Lumet used to rehearse a film for a a month and he made some magnificent films but i just oh so i was very fortunate in working almost completely with people i knew and i said okay here's the scene blah 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 what don't you understand because the see that's the real truth when you read the play you understand the play there is no greater meaning right there may be a greater meaning to the audience when you add the performance but there is no greater meaning so i always said in the rehearsal period the actors spend three weeks pretending they don't understand the play, and the director spends three weeks pretending he does. <laughs> <laughs> and then they have opening night, and everyone's on the same page. <laughs> well, yeah, to a certain extent. Yeah. But uh, in a movie, you know, when you have to dramatize every scene, uh, one thing I was noticing in Oleana that's, that's good, and I forget who said it, maybe John Ford or someone, but just if you give the actors enough things to do during a scene, then they're not... They forget to act. That's true, and and, and that's true of Oleana because it's 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 very very difficult to film a play. It's it's done uh, well seldom. One signal example of it being done well is Jamie Foley's version of uh, Glenn Gary Glenn Ross. But the better a play it is, the worse a movie it's going to make. It's because what you really want to do in a movie, you don't want to dramatize the scene. You don't want to follow the actors around. You want to take a bunch of photographs 
which when cut together will tell the story to the audience. So I watched two movies the other night. One was Union Station with William Holden and uh, Barry Fitzgerald, which is work of genius, and uh, directed by Rudolf Mate. And then my wife and I, the dogs weren't ready to go to bed. And so we watched uh, All About Eve with uh, Betty Davis and and Baxter and like that. And we realized you, you really can't watch All About Eve. You especially can't watch it over Union Station. Because Union Station, you can't take your eyes off of the screen for an hour and a half. It's a work of absolute genius. And the next thing is uh, actors with not much to do talking about it, right? What you mm-hmm. want to do in a movie, and like Hemingway said, you want to take your best story and throw out all the good lines. What you want to do in a movie is get rid of the goddamn dialogue. Now, in Oleana, you can't do that because all that would be left was the titles. <laughs> in the movie today, that would take up an hour and a half because you'd also have the credits of 8,000 fucking producers, you know? <laughs> Well, first of all, gay gasp. He hates <gasps> all about Eve. <laughs> How dare he? <laughs> it's a lot, you know. It's he's, crazy. He's a, you can just listen to him talk about anything. For really anything for hours. He, he is the most entertaining talker I think I've ever heard in my life. We can listen to him talk about anything all day, but on this podcast, we like to talk about the movie in question. So we wanted to ask him how he cast an unknown actor in a leading role, the role of Carol. So my wife and Billy Macy, Rebecca Pigeon and Billy Macy, were going to make the film, but she was very, very pregnant, and we got closer to the thing. She just said, I just can't do it. And so Debbie Eisenstadt, who had been her uh, understudy and then eventually played it, went in, so it was Debbie and, and Bill. How did, how did you find Debbie? She showed up in a cattle call. Absolutely, just out of nowhere. I didn't know her from Adam's off ox. <laughs> she just showed up. I said, wow, this woman's terrific. She just stood out. There was something about yeah, her. Yeah, sure. So that so that was it. If the Samuel L. Goldman Jr. wants to make your movie, then your movie's getting made. Yeah, so he made the movie, so he sees the rough cut, so we're sitting down, and he says, you mind if I cut out all the bullshit about how much I loved it? And so I said, no, I, I, I mind him very much, actually. I kind of like <laughs> it if you went through that. <laughs> and how much did he love it? He, he hated it. <laughs> but uh, he's entitled. You know. <laughs> I always say to people when they used to, I used to write a lot of movies, I used to say, let me tell you my deal. You're going to pay me a fortune. I'm going to write absolutely the best script I know how, and you're going to hate it. <laughs> and it's absolutely true. <laughs> but, I mean, the making of it, there has to be, it has to have been a hard film to make. For no, its the, sparsity, the, for its here, here's intensity. The, here's the great secret of the movie business. There's nobody home. You don't need producers. No film has ever been made out of the development project. You don't need audience, blah, blah, blah. What you need is some person with an idea and some person with money. And then you pick up the phone and you call a cinematographer and you call a designer and you call three actors and you go someplace and make the damn movie. So I had to drive here past the Fox Studios, you know, and they keep tearing down. I think there's nothing left to tear down. It's just all offices. Yeah. For who? I mean, what do those people do? I don't know. <laughs> you know I've been in show business for 50 years. I, I don't know what a producer does. <laughs> They're supposed to put people together. It sounds like, you know, you're already doing that if you're making your movie. Well, of course. Of course they are. I mean, it, it seems to me like having, you know, like like having a, a sexual coach on your wedding night. <laughs> <laughs> Putting you together. Yeah. This guy's single-handedly putting producers out of business. <laughs> 8,000 fucking... Pre- well, you got him to say the F word, finally. 
when you had to mention producers. Now we're going to get one of those explicit E's on iTunes. Oh, is that what happens? They put an E up when we swear. Sorry. Wow. Uh, but it's David Mamet. What were you expecting? Right. So we eventually had to address the uh, 800-pound gorilla in the room, and that is Me Too. While there's no, you don't actually see any uh, sexual assault in, in this movie, an accusation of rape is made. You tried to rape me. I was leaving this office. You pressed yourself into me. You pressed your body into me. I... My group has told your lawyer we may pursue criminal charges. No. Under the statute, I am told it was battery. No. Yes, and attempted rape. That's right. Get out. Of course, I thought you knew. I have to talk to my lawyer. Yes, perhaps you should. Obviously, we wanted his take on the Me Too movement, even though he had warned us ahead of time he only wants to talk about the movie, but the movie sort of is about Me Too, so we had to ask. But he shut us down pretty quickly, but he had interesting thoughts in the realm of Me Too. I'm just wondering what your thoughts are about her journey in the film and what it does say about the Me Too movement. Well, I got nothing to say about the Me Too movement, so if you want me to end my career, you're going to have to ask me something else. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> so we won't talk about Me Too movement, but, but let's talk about Carol. Well, look at there's a couple of wonderful examples of I bet you can't do that. And one of them is Othello, right? So we say Iago says uh, to himself, he says to the audience, and the audience says to Iago, I bet you can't turn him against his wife by the end of the play. So he takes the dare, and indeed he does. Shakespeare manages to, t to have Iago turn Othello against his wife by the end of the play. And another example, of course, is, the, is uh, if we're looking at humor, is the book of Job, where God says to the devil, you can't turn Job against me, and, and uh, God is proved correct. But I was thinking of Othello the other night because <laughs> I wanted to do a, a cartoon. You know, I, I do cartoons all the time. And Othello's saying to Iago, where's my pillow? <laughs> and so my wife, who's extremely hip, she says, no, 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 no. He has to say, Iago, where's my lucky pillow? <laughs> <laughs> so what we see in that play is because it's a tragedy, something which can't happen does happen, right? To perfectly rational human beings get driven insane, which is what a, uh, what a tragedy is about. Because a tragedy is about what fools we are. We're just evil, sitting fools, and we can't trust our instincts and we can't trust our reasons why we have to have law and why we have to have religion. Because if you take it away, we're guilty creatures sitting at a play and we know ourselves to be. So what tragedy does is it allows us to experience vicariously the, the maculate nature of humanity, of ourselves. We say, oh, my, that, that's not me. But, oh, my God, look at what they did. I, I, I've... Uh, I've experienced fear and pity, as Aristotle used to say, right? Pity for the poor schmucks and fear because, oh, my God, there's something of myself in them, as, of course, there is, which is why we re remember tragedies for 2,000 years. And there's a bit of you in each of these characters, clearly. Well, sure. Or, 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 or a or, lot so, of you. <laughs> who are they? It's like somebody this, I was directing this person years ago. They said, should I use my own experiences? I said, well, what choice do you have? <laughs> so... Without talking about me too, he was. I think he was going back to the, the his intention with the piece, which is that it's a tragedy and it's two people driven to their extremes. Right. And in there, he threw that 
great uh, Othello anecdote and um, joke about a pillow. I don't, I, I'm not sure I totally got it. Did you? Othello, you know, uh, smothers He's his wife with a pillow. Well, you know, her name is Desdemona. That's that's something. Yeah, because in Fame, they had a whole number around Desdemona. I was really into Fame as a kid. Fame, the TV show? Mm -hmm. Desdemona. <laughs> Did that only go to Canada? <laughs> no, it was an American show. Oh, okay. Now, as I mentioned earlier, I had seen this Oleana off-Broadway, and I just remember being really very fundamentally shaken by it. And I think... This is one of the situations where the play, I think, it was more effective than the movie to me mm -hmm. because it's right there in front of you and you're watching this unfold in front of you. And um, so I asked Mamet, what was the reaction like then with live audiences? And uh, it was quite an intense answer. They, they rioted. They basically rioted. I wasn't expecting anything like that. There were fights in the theater every night. There, and some of them got physical, between men and the women, and they didn't always take the same side. And Mary McCann, who replaced either Deb or, or Rebecca, play rent for a long time off-Broadway, a guy actually punched her coming out of the theater. Whoa. They'd scream at the stage. It, it was great. <laughs> I was going to say, did that please you, or what? Like, how does no, it feel it, for it, you? It shocked me because I always remembered that, you know, from scene, I think, Act One, Scene Two, if memory serves me correctly, which I doubt, of Hamlet, where he says to Horatio, "I have been told that guilty creatures sitting at a play may be so moved to the blah 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 that, in effect, that they forget themselves." And I always thought that was nonsense till I saw solely Anna, and people right. went nuts. Yeah, you have to reserve your judgment till the end of the play because you know who who your whose side to to reduce it that you're on just switches throughout the piece. Yeah, and I mean, uh, they, you know, as they say, they killed Socrates not because he he corrupted the youth of At Athens, but because they couldn't answer his arguments. So they said, "Oh my God, the guy's stolen my mind." <laughs> <laughs> Has that been your experience a lot through your career? You find people just get mad at you because. They don't know how else to feel. Oh, yeah, sure. But that's not your attention. <laughs> no, God, no. Why, why, why would that be my attention? <laughs> you know, it's like Heming uh, Ernest Hemingway, right? Another Jew said, um, <laughs> call, him, call him like you see him in hell with it. So that's great advice for any act I, uh, author. I, I try to remember it. I, I try to do the same, too. I mean, oh, good. When you uh, sit down to write, say, um, you know, because you're, you're, you're so... Uh, skilled at it, is it something that just comes instinctually or do you think of the tenets that you hold yourself to when you're sitting down and writing? Like, how does that? Well, the good thing about it is you don't have to hand it in. You don't have to put your name on it until you're done. And so, you know, being as much of you know coward and a fool as everybody else, I'm always uh, say, yeah, that's good enough. And I say, no, you know what? Do it again. Do it until you don't know any better. And sometimes you don't know any better and you say, nope, I'm going to put it aside. And sometimes you say, oh, I get it. I'm, uh, I'm done. Oh, okay. Because it's wonderful when you find yourself being surprised. You say, oh, I didn't, know, didn't realize that was there. Yeah. Is Rebecca the first person who reads your finished work? No. You have one person <laughs> that it always goes to? Or? Well, my, my wonderful assistant, Pam Susamil, types it, and then I send it out to my, my wonderful agent, uh, Ron Guiast, and he sends it out to my wonderful colleague and producer, uh, Jeffrey Richards in New York, and Becca gets to it eventually. <laughs> Does, who's, whose opinion means the most to you? Well, this is going to sound stupid, but it's mine, because if that is not the most important opinion in the world to me, I'm not trying hard enough. On the other hand, I'm often wrong. 
<laughs> That's the thing. You're, like, you're too close to it sometimes. Well, sure. And so uh, it's like directing. You know, I say never indecisive, often wrong. <laughs> but the only time you're absolutely sure, absolutely sure, everything you've done is absolutely correct, you've probably just completed a piece of track. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you read your re- reviews and care about reviews? No, I haven't read reviews for decades. When something uh, doesn't feel like it's working to you, how do you? What do you do? Like, say a certain scene is just kind of lying there. I fix it because listen, you have to have. Um, I find one has to have principles rather than saying, "Oh, the scene doesn't work." You say, "Okay, I get it. The scene doesn't work. Why doesn't it work?" So I'm always trying to refer back to the outline, saying, "What's the purpose of the scene? What's happening in the scene?" Who wants what from whom? What happens if I take the scene away? Because this guy wrote me a thing. He said, oh, will you please watch my movie and give me your uh, advice? I said, no, I won't watch your movie, but I'll give you my advice. <laughs> throw out the first 10 minutes. Take the scene you don't know where to put. Throw it out of the movie. Cut 30 seconds off the beginning and 30 seconds off the end of each scene and get out sooner. Because that's going to make any movie better. <laughs> right. I mean, other than that, you know, I used to do that when I was a little bit more foolish than I am now and give people my advice. And, of course, they didn't take it because why should they? I've never taken anyone's advice, but it did make them hate me. So I just stopped doing it. Why did it make them hate you? Well, because if no, because that's our children, you know. So if, if you say something, other, oh, my God, I never lived until I saw your play. Now I understand. You say anything other than that, people think, well, this schmuck. <laughs> so anyway, well, we just wanted to keep talking to him forever, but uh, you know, the time had to wind up, so we thought we'd just ask him a few random things. Yeah, things we always wanted to know about David Mamet. What was your response to uh, about last night, which was the well, version I thought of that sexual they did something perversion. really, really interesting is that they took my uh, wonderful screenplay and then they threw it out. And then they took my moneymaker title, and then they threw that out. And then <laughs> Steven Soderbergh came out and did Sex, Lies, and Videotapes, excellent title. And so uh, that's uh, to me, was a magnificent example of, uh, of uh, producerial thinking. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, what about uh, Untouchables? How do you feel about Untouchables? Oh, I like it very much. It was, uh, I thought it was a hell of a movie. Yeah, I had a wonderful time writing that. Madonna and Speed the Plow, what do you think of her in that? Oh, she was great. I mean, they, they, everybody landed on top of me and on top of her because we cast uh, in the role of an ingenue, the most famous person in the world. I thought, well, wait a second. You know, I thought, I thought we did this for money, you know. <laughs> she did a really wonderful job, but the people, uh, the, curiously, the press took the most salacious and obvious thing that they could and kept reprinting it until they ran out of ink. Hmm. <laughs> I have to say, I don't know what salacious, obvious thing he was referring to, but I do remember she got some really bad reviews. Okay. Well, if anybody out there listening does know, <laughs> that's right. drop us a line. Drop us a line at IHIH at THR.com. A huge thank you to David Mamet. I mean, this is such an honor to be able to pick his brain. It was a real thrill. It was a real thrill. If you don't have his book, Bambi versus Godzilla, that's perhaps one of the best books about uh, Hollywood screenwriting that's out there. And he told us he's working on new plays right now, and he plans on having them premiere in 2020 in New York. So we have uh, exciting new works from The Great Mammoth to look forward to. And uh, I guess that's it. For something completely different, join us next week. We have Ray Don Chong, 
daughter of Tommy Chong, who was a guest on our first season, here to ostensibly talk about Commando with Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> she went Commando, all right, but in this <laughs> interview. She talked about everything. <laughs> we went all over the place with Ray, and she was really fun. Yeah. Um, and very uncensored and uh, uncaring of any bridges she might be burning. Um, <laughs> yeah, so, so check that one out. We, it, we encourage you to check that one out. I promise there are things in there you're going to want to hear. Um, meantime, please subscribe and rate us, review us, and we'll see you next week, right? Yeah. And until then, we'll, we'll see, see you in Hollywood. Hollywood.